Well, this is what happens when you take a few weeks off. <laughs> Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. Back after missing the last two Saturday nights due to the NFL playoffs, things didn't work out so well for our Patriots. But uh, football is still going on, just thankfully not on Saturday nights. So that means we're back here to talk with you about the paranormal each and every Saturday night, both on the radio, on WBSM, as well as on Spooky TV, which you can find on SpookySouthCoast.com, our in-studio camera that lets you look into the crazy world that is the Spooky Studio. And uh, also, don't forget, podcasting. Have you heard about this thing, podcasting? <clears throat> I heard something about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been catching on. We've been doing it for, oh, I don't know, the last five years. I don't think it's going to catch on. Well, at least at least we can keep doing it. And uh, so, we, yeah, that's right. We're coming up on our uh, our anniversary here. Uh, we went on January 28th, I think it was, 2006. So uh, we're coming up on the anniversary. But uh, we are pleased to announce also that we are soon going to be part of an iPhone app. Can you believe this? It's crazy. We're going to be on the iPhone slash iPod Touch. And uh, it's going to be through a ghost hunting app that uh, some friends of ours are developing. And we'll have more information on you that as that, uh, for, on that as that comes along. And if uh, we have anybody out there that develops apps for BlackBerry or Droid or anything and wants to work on one for the show, hey, get in touch with me, TimAtSpookySouthCoast.com. But uh, all kinds of ways to hear the show, all kinds of ways to watch the show. There's video on demand. There's audio podcasting. There's our friends uh, at um, – uh, why am I blanking on the name of that? thing that we use it's on the website stitcher 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 radio uh, stitcher.com you can get the app to put on your smartphone and get the on-demand podcasting that way as well but all these ways of getting the show the important part is what the show is all about and tonight we've got a really good one for you because i've been fascinated by this book i've been reading it is called gray aliens and the harvesting of souls the conspiracy to genetically tamper with humanity by nigel kerner and Matt Mooney's going to hold that up for Spooky TV. And the author of that book, Nigel Kerner, is joining us on the line now, all the way from England, uh, as well as <clears throat> uh, an associate of his, John Biggerstaff, Ph.D., who is a little bit closer uh, to our studios here in New England. But uh, Nigel Kerner is an author and freelance journalist, born in Sri Lanka. His mother was a, from a British planting family, and his father an officer in the British Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm. This international family base provided the background for an obsessive and serious interest in international human affairs and how these interfere with, uh, interface with science, religion, and philosophy. I'm kind of off my game tonight. I apologize. He has felt driven from his young years to expose the humbug and hypocrisy in modern scientific and religious and social thinking. His formal graduate edu education is in biomedical science and human behavioral psychology. Uh, his fascination with the puzzling and enigmatic, enigmatic, what is wrong with me tonight? Enigmatic? Three weeks off the air, and this is what happens. <laughs> uh, anyway, his first book is Song of the Greys, published in 1997, and now his new book is Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. Uh, and it's just a great read. It's an amazing read. Uh, Nigel, thanks for joining us tonight. And sorry I flubbed that intro, but we've had a few weeks off here, and I, I should have been practicing my radio hosting at home instead of playing video games. Not, not at all. You're, you're a consummate professional there, Tim. Greetings to everyone in America, wherever this is going out. <laughs> well, we are actually, we're based in Massachusetts, uh, almost near right. Cape Cod, but uh, we do have oh, a national and international audience, so. Okay, all Bostonians and, 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 and Harvardites. Is it Harvardites? I don't know what you call you, uh, your famous university there, but I'm quite close to Oxford uh, here in England, so we have that kind of connection, shall we say. 
Well, anyway, let's hope, that, let's hope that I can give you some kind of indication uh, about the, the, the subject I'm talking about. You quoted the, the title of the book, and I have to say I have to apologize for the title. That's no doing of mine, I'm afraid. That's uh, a, pub, a publisher's right, I suppose, to, to sell a book or whatever. But it, it sounds rather bizarre, does it not? The harvesting of souls. It sounds really spooky. <laughs> but you know, However, yeah, I was going to say, you know, though, that, you're, that seems to be exactly the, the, the point of what you're discussing in the book. Yeah, but the, the ironic thing, you know, Tim, is that uh, when I started with this business, I was a, a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic about it all. You know, I thought the whole thing was out there with the aliens, uh, Mickey Mouse, Buck Rogers, you name it. And my son was a rather, um, uh, you know, well-hitched-up kid of 12, asked me the question, are these UFO things real, you know? And I had no answer to give him because uh, I had no, no, actually no idea at all what these things were. And I thought to myself, well, I better cover myself and do a little bit of research before I came back to him with that. So I took a rain check, and a few years later, he'd completely turned me upside down in the entire existential vista that I actually believed in and so forth. And science taught me, and I'm kind of soaked in science myself. And, of course, all my colleagues, um, we had a, a kind of in a familial forum, shall we say, of people who studied all these various um, uh, things that actually were pertinent to this, this, this question of whether these things are real or not and so on. And biochemistry came into it and, and psychology came into it and the entire gamut came into it. And after so many years of painstaking research, as I said, I mean, I, I only believe what I can see through a test tube, so to speak. At least I did. Um, and then whilst we looked at this thing and opened the Pandora's box, so to speak, there was such an amazing revelation coming out of this that when you hitched it up, you know, pound for pound, so to speak, one plus one equals one plus one kind of business, you, begin, you began to see there were connections everywhere in this. And not only was this, this UFO business uh, connected up to, you know, things that fly in the sky at 25,000 k's an hour or whatever, turning at right angles in a, in a smidgen, so to speak, um, these things actually related to most of the kind of philosophical backdrop in terms of our human condition. And that is the thing that fascinated me. So I examined the body of evidence, so to speak for this alien phenomenon from reliable witness sources, as everyone else does. But I went into it quite, uh, quite deeply in, in terms of the numbers and so on, because I really wanted to prove this a myth. There was, that was really my instigation. Not very good science, I know. But there was something about this that kind of, you know, thought, I thought, dear, oh, dear, how on earth can this happen? You know, this is not, this is not according to the rules, if you like, that we know about. And, of course, to me, the big deal was this, this thing they call the second law of thermodynamics, where, you know, we, everything rots. It all goes into randomness and chaos with time, everything, the entire drive of the universe. How is this possible that within the frame of reference of a thing like that, we can develop into these cogent beings we have, we're supposed to be, and these things can develop these incredible technologies and so on, if indeed they are here from some alien resource, you know, how on earth did they do this? And is this, does it all hang together? And I tell you what, old chap, I really found out uh, most amazing correlations, uh, not just with, with, with the, um, uh, the science bit, um, but also with a religious mechanism. Now, that really was taboo to me because I wasn't really a very, very religious sort anyway to start with. And, you know, any kind of organized smack of anything, uh, I was a, a bit of a rebel against and so on. 
And then I began to see that not only was this thing deeply and profoundly based upon some kind of um, um, admixture of philosophical um, um, methodologies that people believed in, but it was also related to the, 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 the actual philosophy of science, too. And when, when the three things came together with, in this kind of way, you know, it was time to put it down and, and tell my story, so to speak, you know. Well, it, it's sorry, imp- sorry about that long spiel, Tim, but that's <laughs> and that's that's I, that's by way of an introduction, by the way. Nigel, I'm <laughs> going to tell you that uh, you can speak for as long as you want because everybody in the chat room on SpookySouthCoast.com is just remarking on how much they love your accent. So, and that's the first time I've been called old chap by by a real Englishman. So, thank you for that. <laughs> the uh, l- let's introduce also your colleague uh, John Biggerstaff, PhD. He obtained an honors degree in medical biochemistry from the University of Surrey in the UK. This was followed by a diploma in immunology from King's College of London, and in 1995, he obtained a Ph.D. in cell biology and biochemistry from Brunel University, and then moved to the USA to take up a postdoctoral position. He is now a research associate professor in Tennessee and holds adjunct research associate professorships in genome sciences and technology, biochemistry, molecular and cell biology, microbiology, environmental biotechnology, and nutrition. Uh, His main research interests include the study of immunity and inflammation and cancer, as well as the analysis of the biocompatibility of materials used in medical devices and implants. Uh, Good evening, Dr. Biggerstaff. How are you? Good evening, Tim. Um, Yeah, my background in in all of this uh, with with Nigel goes back many, many years when we used to have sort of arguments and conversations about the, the very questions that he's just outlined to you. And it was of interest to me, you know, with all my training in in sort of traditional science, uh, as you may see from my resume there, I cross lots of subject boundaries. And and I find that it's very useful, for instance, in in immunity and cancer and the blood clotting system, etc. To mix those up is, is, is actually crossing quite a few subject boundaries. And so I became interested in this and said, okay, well, uh, if this were the case, then what evidence could there be? What you know uh, within the within the body, the genome, and the cell uh, to be able to um, uh, you know give evidence or potential evidence at least for how this works? And this is the sort of thing I've been working on, um, you know, to try and uh, try and assist with um, Nigel's thesis, really. Well, let me give you guys a little bit of a background on uh, my colleague here to my left. <clears throat> Excuse me, Matt Moniz is the science advisor and co-host of the program here, and he is also a scientist uh, by trade. Matt, why don't you give the guys a little bit of your background? All right. My background is in analytical chemistry. I've, I did work in environmental science, uh, product testing, and currently work in pharmaceuticals. Started in you a know, uh, little community college, went to UMass Dartmouth, and then a little cow college up in Cambridge called Harvard, and then um, been working in science for the past 20-something years. So I have a cross <laughs> cross thing uh, uh, pretty much like yourself. You know, environmental stuff is the first step. Then I took it, like I said, into um, product testing and now now into the body itself of pharmace- pharmaceuticals. So, And I've been researching oh, alien abductions now 20, almost 25 years. And I have to agree. Going through all of those other processes, it helps you look at the abduction process in in a multiple in multiple ways. And you you're right. You get to see little bits of evidence in each of the avenues you look in. 
It's interesting because, uh, Nigel, as I'm reading the book and I'm reading some of the uh, researchers that you've quoted and that you've kind of used some of the works of as a launching pad in your own research, uh, like Dr. David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins, uh, guys of this sort. These are all people that Matt's worked side by side with for a number of years. Uh, so I, I, when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, I can't wait to get you know, both of you on either end of a conversation here. Yeah, well, the, the, you've got the highest quality people there in, in Professor Jacobs and uh, the um, um, Bud um, uh, Bud Hopkins, the, his associate, or, or in, in in some kind of you know um, uh, way in this, the, the kind of interface quite well. And I, I looked for people who were reliable, people that uh, were not, or shall we say, with the best intention, uh, part of the shall the. Um, People call it, you know, for want of a better word, the lunatic fringe, but they are these very nice people who want to believe that there's a, a good fairy godmother out there and so forth. And here we are, stuck in the second law of thermodynamics, everyone dying, nothing going the other way. How on earth do we actually uh, explain um, the, the situation where we can think such magnificent thoughts, have a, a wonderful imagination, have and, and actually achieve things that are, are so beyond the scale of just simply rotting down in nature and nurture, so to speak, as we go along. And I, I was quite struck by the fact that you, uh, what you said there, Matt, and that is that, you know, uh, once you start to connect the dots together, and that's the point, you've got to get in there, get the knowledge, see that it actually hangs together logically and reasonably, and then put the dots all the dots there in front of you and start to pick this thing up and then you begin to see a, a massive great conspiracy probably to my mind the single most powerful uh, mechanism uh, that prevails against humankind in the world today is this UFO phenomenon and its repercussions and so forth and the fact that this thing has been so obscured by such powerful people such that you, you, your best best men there, good men and true, astronauts and so on, have to go uh, rather like the recent meeting at the, um, um, the kind of uh, the I'm just looking at my notes here in terms of your Washington uh, press club um, uh, appearance of these uh, individuals who actually had to go out there and say, now hang on a minute look, we're not lying, we know what we're talking about, this business is real. Now just imagine Tim, Matt if you've got something of that kind that's real, that can come here past the speed of light, they could absolutely play havoc with the human aegis. And unless we guard this human aegis very, very carefully, with that kind of uh, intelligence extrapolating on us, we may well have become a kept species. In other words, you know, sponsored by some other thing that might be here for their own purposes and not ours. And if that's the case, then all things are up for grabs, so to speak. And as a, as a dad, you know, with children and so forth, I want to know that they're okay, that they're going to be safe in the future. And so, therefore, all of that led to the writing of the books and so on. Well, it's interesting because, you know, for so many years, people have speculated, you know, why are they coming here? Why are these alien beings coming here and abducting human beings, running these tests? What greater purpose do they serve? And it seems like uh, from your book, they... they definitely have an intent and they have a reason for coming and doing what they're doing. 
and about that, uh, uh, Tim. And this, the, this is the big deal here. What is it that this strange species, inferior ostensibly to what these guys can do in actually getting here, what on earth do we have that these things don't have? When you put the evidence together, you begin to see that these things are not naturally alive in the sense we are. We have, it's, it's a battle, you see, between nurture and nature and extrapolated, created artificial being. And that is what is happening on the Earth. If you look at today, we are going on towards a kind of an artificial type, mechanistic type, human sense, if you see what I'm trying to say. Automaton. Transplants. And these things, I think, have done this a long time ago, and they are, in fact, an artificial kind of synthetic kind of being. Robots or roboids, if you like, biologically synth synthesized being and so on. Once you get that, you have to run on a program. There's no such thing as free will, and there's no such thing as uh, the ability to feel an emotional sense that can actually go against a drive like the second law to say, look, stop, I want to get off this particular, you know, carousel, so to speak. I really want to go on and do what I feel is right, if you see what I'm trying to say. And to do that, you've got to be natural. And the great clue that came to me out of the blue, so to speak, in the research was, hey, what is it that makes us so special? And that is that we come from an ancestral line going back every single single living biological entity, not just human beings, comes from a cascade right the way down from the beginning of the universe with the Big Bang. So we go back to dad, granddad, great-granddad, so forth, all the way down back into that first point which the universe burst in, they say, from a single point and so forth. But the implication is that it had to, there had to be something before that. So I had, therefore, to contrive a sense or understand that principle, almost new, so to speak. How do I explain this? Is there a, gray, a man with a gray flowing beard touching Adam's finger out there? Is there such a thing as an anthropomorphic god? if you see what I'm trying to say, mm -hmm. created in our image and likeness, but a little bit more super than mum and dad or the local lord of the manor, if you see what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it in that kind of cold light of uh, logical sort of science, you see, you begin to see something else. You begin to see a singularity, something wonderful where everything is together at one point. And then something happens to provide a contrast because there is everything together. By implication, there has to be its opposite too. If there's a yin, there's a yang. There's a plus, there's a minus. That kind of thing. And there must be an implicit status there of, these, of this duality, which then, because of the potential difference between the two, gives rise to a center-based expression. And I think that's our universe, if you like. But we come in with this to the present time. And that, to me, is the soul. Quite simply, the information line that centers in each one of our individualities, you and me and everyone else out there, that comes through to the present moment in time, so to speak. And this is the great thing. Soul is not some wonderful, magical thing out there. Of course it is, because all that ancestry is particularized, if you like, and isolated in every person's individuality, like an incredible fingerprint. Nothing, no two things are the same through experience and so on. So a soul is simply that individualized line, if you like. However, if you've got some kind of being that's so sophisticated, Tim, out there, that can actually run on a program in a kind of purely technological, mechanical sort of format, then it may well be possible 
for that kind of technology to put that format, that program, and hitch that up to whatever this line might be that's continuing through us. And if that's the case, then we become spliced, so to speak. And our individuality and our specialness is lost because it's superimposed by something else that's using that, that is actually created from within this universe. It's not, in fact, come in with it. So a soul is extremely special. So anything that lives naturally would have this line and is much more, in a sense, superior to what this kind of synthetic thing might be, like a roboid or whatever. And these greys, with all the evidence I, I've tried to, to, to look at and so forth, everything spoke to me that these things are really artificial. And they're created by some mechanism out there. We can talk about that. There are different schools of thoughts on how this kind of uh, might have happened and so on. And the whole point is that this is what we have to look at. It's nurture, nature, naturalness against artificiality. That's the big battle out there in space-time, in all the planets and so forth. And it's really come to this Earth, and no one's, I believe, adequately realized the significance of this huge dichotomy here. What do we do? How do we defend ourselves? Are we going to be SIM card man one day when a little injection given to us ostensibly when we go to a hospital, whatever, can actually control the mechanism of our life and our thinking and so on? Now, that's a horror story that bear, doesn't bear revelation, does it, really? So that's how the book came about, if you like. And I was answering my children and trying to leave them a legacy to look to in the, in, in the hope that somehow, in some kind of way, they may still stay natural and in some kind of way focus back to the beginning of, the, of things, so to speak. And I believe religion and the great teachers, especially that beautiful Jew, uh, you know, that, that uh, showed himself to be uh, uh, Jeshua ben Joseph, the, the, uh, the, to give him his Jewish name, and Jesus Christ, to give him the Christian um, uh, epithet of it, that this individual actually came to this planet, I believe, to warn us about this particular phenomenon of the greys or synthetic life interposing itself on natural livingness. And that's when the whole thing began to get extremely interesting because I had to get evidence, obviously, to back this up. And the book is about my search for that evidence and how I uncovered it, and particularly relating to one piece of cloth that we have in this world that provides an amazing schematic of the power of our natural being and how this power, each one of us, remember, may well do that same thing that Jesus Christ did in a little tomb in Jerusalem, uh, and, uh, the artifact of which now, this day, defies 21st century science. Now, I have another colleague. Uh, you're, Dr. you're talking, Anderson. of course, about a spooky South Coast T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to tell you that this particular thing, you can't question it because this is hard science. Mm -hmm. I've just come back uh, recently from Frascati in Italy, where there was a symposium of the latest research on this thing they call the Shroud of Turin. And this, this, this kind of uh, cloth, which is 14 foot long, whatever, with an with a, 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 a indent of a human form on it. And it's, they find that this can only be explained by a short, intense burst of radiant energy that actually burnt this image in some kind of way into the cloth, interface with the cloth. Very, very interesting indeed. The best minds, they're not playing around here. This is serious science, deep, in fact, interface science, so to speak. And, of course, um, uh, I'd written about this, and they wanted uh, somebody delivered a, a, a speech on that symposium. Dr. Andrew Silverman did a fantastic speech on this, 
riveted the entire conference. And that's something to really think about, how the proof of that particular thing now endorses the size of humanity itself. And I'm not religious. Let me, let me tell you, I really don't go on this business about, you know, <laughs> praise the Lord and pass me the money, so to speak. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So love- <laughs> as, as I'm reading your book, and it's definitely a, uh, a different take on the school of thought that I always heard about the soul and about the nature of, of human existence. And when you're talking about the second law of thermodynamics, when you're talking about the idea of entropy, we're talking about going from this perfected state down into basically a rotted human uh, being instead of us looking at the usual focus of we're trying to get back to that uh, perfection of being next to God. And I I was just fascinated by that and basically throwing kind of Darwin out the window a little bit there. Well, I mean, you've got – absolutely. And that's what people are are increasingly realizing, that it's a one-way street, this whole business of our existence. However, because we have this connection to the past, there is a self-modulating capacity in each of us to actually return back on this path. And I think what these great teachers were trying to tell us before their message was mangled – by a lot of vain people that took them over or whatever, the real truth of it lies not in the actual journals you see that commonly available to religious invective, but the things they left out of it, the journals they left out. So I went back into those and had a look at it. And then you get a story, believe me, Tim, that is absolutely awesome about what, in fact, these people were actually saying. And, of course, 2000, well, you know, through the centuries, they, they didn't have science to try and understand it. But this guy, Jesus Christ, for instance, was an incredible scientist, absolutely amazing, way beyond the 2,000 years uh, that he left this little souvenir to prove to science today, listen, mate, I can do this, you can do this. Now, you try and explain it if you don't believe in me and what I've been telling you. And the big deal is, He came to tell us how to beat this menace that I believe is now whizzing across our skies and slowly, possibly taking over humankind itself. And that's not to put too fine a point on it, you know. And uh, I I don't want to go into this, but I'll just give you a little bit of this before we talk to John about how this biological thing might be done in, in hard science terms. Let me just give you an example of what I discovered, just to give you an illustration of why I say this. It's not some sensational thing that really does hang up, you know. There is an account in, in the New Testament of a thing they call the temptation. Now, understand, when I was looking at all of this, I was looking very suspiciously at religion, (laughs) you see what I'm trying to say, but trying to find evidence to back up what I was discovering in other ways, so to speak, not this New Age-type stuff, just hard science, empirical science, because that's my background, if you see what I'm trying to say. And I looked at this very strictly in those terms. Now, there's this thing they call the temptation, where I don't know if you are in any kind of... uh, Your listeners, obviously, will be Christian and Jew and, 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 and Gentile and so on. But, and they can check this up for themselves. In the New Testament, it says this, this man, this individual they call uh, Jesus Christ, was taken up to a high place. And there, an entity they call Satan, and it's interesting that the word Satan is actually derived in ancient law as something that fell from the sky, you know. And this individual says to this um, individual they call Jesus, hang on a minute, I look at all this stuff here, I will give you all of this if you bow down and worship me and all kinds of things. So obviously this guy seemed to be in control. Now, what gives an entity like this control in the first place? That's the first question I asked. 
And yet, this man, Jesus, was taken up there by this being. Now, the point is this. He's taken up to a high place and shown the cities of the world. Now, you just think about that. There's no place on the face of the earth 2,000 years ago, high place, that you can take anyone and show them the cities of the world that's built of humankind or human form, by humankind, rather, uh, in human form. And so the fact is, there must be some mechanism here that could take this individual and show him the cities of the world. And the only place you can do that from is space. And if you look at Judea 2,000 years ago, it was the center of all resolved and trading routes and so on. It was a very, very important hub, if you like, historically and, and, and anthropologically and so on. And this particular place would be, if you go up there, maybe 200 miles up into space, you would indeed see all the main cities of the world. And so the implication was quite clear. Maybe the, the thing that took Jesus up to a high place, was a high place out there in space. And then you get the correlation with UFOs and so on. And then Christ is supposed to say to him, listen, mate, you're doing all this. I don't need you to tell me that I can own this, that, or the other. You are less than an insect because you're a machine. Now, that is also plausible because a machine with a program wouldn't have a sense of self. It would not know it's a machine. It's a program thing sent out there into the wide uh, universe, shall we say, to find worlds, if you like, and make things of it that are useful to the parent planet or the beings on that planet for themselves. And so here we are, I believe, dealing with this incredible thing, phenomenon of UFOs 2,000 years ago, and that is the most important thing that I, that, that I discovered, I think, this correlation, that this, this may be what the great teachers were warning us about, this business about being righteous and all that is quite simply using our minds to get onto the channel I call a soul, this information line, and go through that back into that original place we all came from when the singularity, in contrast with its opposite, burst open universes to make bits and parts from this great whole thing together again, and that mind survives and therefore we get things like conscience and so on relating to the whole story in the backdrop, so to speak. And that gave you a very interesting take philosophically on all these, all this business, you know, Tim. And that's my story, really. When I saw all of this coming together, of course, it's, take, it's taking me three books to account for everything in detail so that scientists can look at this, all kinds of people can look at this with a fine-tooth comb and, and just say, look, is this plausible or not? That's really the question I'm asking. If it is plausible... Well, we need to do something about it. If not, it's an interesting read, and I've done no harm, but give you a warning, perhaps, that this might happen in some future time. So that's really the philosophy of the book. And, of course, John Biggestaff, who was a very great mate of mine, and, and Dr. Andrew Silverman, uh, who actually delivered this thing on the Shroud of Turing, which affirms on that piece of cloth the power of every human being to actually reverse the process, and I believe the resurrection, if you like, as this clock actually is evidence to show, actually is a proof that we have a power, each of us, that you be everybody, if we think together enough, the problem is we don't do it enough, enough is the biggest word here, in fact, we go some way and then we give up kind of thing, but this guy managed to go all the way, and if you did that, 
you can actually return into a glorious state that will give you life in an eternal scale and not a temporary one, which cosmologists now tell us will happen because our universe is finite. And it's breaking up, if you see what I mean, according to the second law. So here we are. Is it the eternal, huge, big scale that we want? Or are we going to go run with this, you know, entropic momentum and end up as some kind of addendum for a synthetic form of life which is coming to us in time, perhaps? I hope it never does, but I think we're heading that way now on this Earth. If that comes, we're all in big trouble, Tim, Matt. And I don't know what you make of all of that, but I hope to, to try and demonstrate that this is plausible through the biochemical science to with when, when John comes and starts talking about it. Well, we are talking with uh, Nigel Kerner, the author of Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. And uh, you can get his book pretty much anywhere where you find books online. Uh, we're going to have it up in the Spooky South Coast store as well uh, soon enough. But, uh, John, I want to ask you a question, uh, Dr. John Biggerstaff, who's here. Getting back just for a second to the idea of the soul, you know, we're talking about this and, and we're taking it uh, taking it for granted kind of the, that, as, as Nigel said, every living entity seems to have a soul. Any any entity that's living through nature uh, has a soul. In your work in uh, biochemistry and uh, with the human body, have you found some scientific evidence of this soul? Well, in fact, uh, there are some very interesting suggestions which actually go back to the 1930s and, and uh, perhaps slightly before, really when Schrodinger was, was doing his work really on, on the essence of, of uh, quantum, quantum physics, uh, etc., you know, I mean, experiments were performed that, that uh, you know, required the observer. If, if, in fact, they did experiments with subatomic particles, the particles would behave one way if they weren't being observed, and they'd behave another way if they were. And this generated this concept of this, this observer effect. Now, the problem is that a lot of this stayed within physics for very many years. And now that we've got to the point where we know all about genetics in, in, um, uh, in biology, we're now beginning to find that our genetics is not really correlating with, with exactly what's happening in our biology, that there are epigenetic effects, etc. But coming back to this, you know, this quantum field that, that Schrodinger and others, David Bohm, etc., uh, wrote books on things like quantum consciousness. The reason that, that, you know, people like Bohm came up with this idea is that really if you've, if you've got some, um, consciousness has to be really outside of the frame it's referencing. And therefore it's in a, in, in, in a continuum, if you like, which is really defined by the atomic spaces. In other words, the spaces between atoms as, as, as part of, of this whole continuum. And you could clearly see that uh, if you take that space between the atoms, it is in fact a universe-wide continuum much as if you had marbles in a jar and you pour water in. The water is a continuum. It's, it's, it's actually continuous. Whereas the marbles themselves, if you like, are all, are all discrete and they can only touch each other. And so you, you get a different set of properties for each. And really what Nigel is now postulating and, and I think is, is great is that um, the space between these atoms is in fact less enforced than the atomic frame itself and effectively redef or defines this, this sort of center point where there is effectively a cancelling out of all force, which is a really sort of a zero point. And in fact, this is, this is where, you know, physics, etc., is really trying to come up with this concept now of, of zero point energy, uh, etc. <laughs> so 
Uh, what we're really postulating here, I think, is that the quantum field that the physics ha has found is and 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 has to has to contain consciousness to actually be an observer. Uh, if that's actually true, then obviously the first event in the universe had to be observed to be, and therefore consciousness came in uh, with the beginning of, of the universe. And we can and gradually, effectively, it started to, to as it associated and, and, and atoms became more complex, etc. This thing, uh, this great concept, split up into into smaller subsets of it, which could subtend what they could. And eventually, you know, you get to the point where, where you have beings on a planet such as us, and we have a planet-wide species, uh, you know, a species vibration, if you like, for, for human beings, and we each have our little bit of bandwidth that fits within that. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is that because we are within this continuum, we have free choice to either continue with it, really to observe difference from the point of view of difference which you can't do at a zero point for instance and therefore we can we can choose to change our minds if you like which is another quotation from from jesus etc we can go back if we want to or we can go on forwards and i think what happens is that as we become more subtended to a, to a particular planet well, we develop the senses effectively, which tell us, you know, not to fall over and, and stuff like that, to avoid, you know, rocks, high places, etc. So we need touch and, and feel and, and smell and, and sight, etc. I think we tend to rely on that. And I think that as we, as we degrade into a state such as this from a, from a prior better state, I think that we then have this tendency to try and use the atoms to actually um, produce technologies which really are prosthetics, if you like, for properties that we used to, we actually used to have. And I think this tendency then continues um, until effectively we start to realize, well, then we start developing things like artificial intelligence, which now artificial intelligence is very, very different because it relies just on the atomic frame itself, which doesn't, force doesn't have access to the center of the space between the atoms, if you like, because it's a purely uh, atomic frame. And so uh, we, we essentially start to make artificial intelligences and, and then try and integrate them with, with ourselves. And you can see all over the Internet, for instance, of people who are trying to, uh, trying to put all of these devices in, inside us, etc. But as Nigel said earlier, what this results in is that one abrogates one's ability to express free will because effectively you've got artificial stuff in you which is not under your conscious control. And I think that this is really the origin of, uh, <clears throat> effectively, in other words, an, an, a, an artificial devolution, devolutionary product in itself is to create these beings, in fact. And then we'll go off and send them into space, and we, in fact, send things into space, and we put more, you know, better and better computers in them. And, you know, you can imagine, a, you know, a civilization that was much more in advance of ours can actually make things like these greys, etc., um, uh, which which can then come here and effectively take advantage of that devolutionary process yeah. that we're in. I just, I just want to come in and say something here, if I may, uh, Tim. Sure. And that is, uh, as John has laid out this, uh, this entire schematic, the whole business is about control, you see. Who controls what? And if we have complete control with our free will, so to speak, to do anything we would like, 
Whether we do it or not, we have the potential control, shall we say. Well, that's really the, great, the greatest power of all. And I think what is happening is that all of this is now moving into a mechanistic type of control where the business of our own will to do it in our individuality is being taken away from us in the interests of something else. Now, whether governments do it or whether some alien-type form comes and does it or not, the whole thing is that you and I and our children may well lose that absolutely paramount right of effect, so to speak, to handle ourselves. When we die, we go wherever we go beyond, uh, on our own, so to speak. No mums and dads and boys and girls, boyfriends and girlfriends or whatever. None of, none of that kind of thing, you see. We go on our own. And within that scale of effect, surely the most important thing is for us to actually have and retain this all-encompassing control. And that really is the big business philosophically about my book, you see, Tim, is to actually plead for that control and to justify why we ought to have it, so to speak, you know. And, and, and as I said, and, and John laid out a very good connecting mechanism, the space between atoms, the center of which has no force whatsoever. Do you know when the astronauts went up into space with less gravity there, most of them came back and had a lovely religious take on things. So when force is taken away from acting on us, we seem to know much grander scales of union and effect. However, if you put a bunch of mice in the bag and direct microwaves, which is like little pencil beams of concentrated force at them, they will kill each other. Even mice will do that, gentle mice, if you like. They would kill each other. So force tends to make us... Force acting on us tends to make us even more aggressive, less meaningful and reasonable than when there is no force. And the place to access our no-forceness, so to speak, is the space between all our atoms. And there we still have what I think is the prior frame we come from shining through these tracks, these connected tracks, as John put it. And, uh, you know, the, 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 I try go to go to length in the book into trying to justify this schematic, this mechanism, which then leads us back to that original point. Each one of us, we have access there. The thing is that if you've got an artificial creation like a robot, it would not understand that principle. It would not understand that paradox. It would just want to, to live like us forever because it's subject to sec the second law of thermodynamics. It will end. It will rot. So it's looking for things and systems in the universe to be able to plagiarize, if you see what I mean, these things on their own behalf, kind of piggyback on our soul mechanism, which is naturally contrived for us because we each came in. All naturally living things came in with the universe, and they did not. They are created. They are made, if you like, artificially. So that's the big battle. Artificial against natural. Synthetic against natural, so to speak. Oh, that's really the, the whole thing. And so, uh, John, as uh, I mean, he will take you on the, on the biology in, in part two, perhaps in the in the next part of the program, and I'll, you, you can then uh, talk, talk to him how this particular thing with the genome is affected and so on. He has an interesting take on all of that. All right. Well, we will get to that second hour in just a few minutes. We have to take a break now for the network news. We come back. We will talk about the genome. We'll talk about more about aliens and the idea of harvesting human souls and about the Shroud of Turin. And it's not just coincidence that Matt Moniz looks like Jesus with his new beard here because we're <laughs> going to talk more about Jesus as well. And what does it all have to do with gray aliens? So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more. Also, a huge announcement about a big event coming up February 26th. 
You don't want to miss that. We'll get right into it as soon as we come back from the news. Stay tuned for more with Nigel Kerner and John Biggerstaff here on Spooky South Coast. Ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Allow me to reintroduce myself. Spooky South Coast is back. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? This is very unusual. We don't even know what the impact is of what we did. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz, broadcasting both on WBSM uh, over the Spooky South Coast internet airwaves and also on Spooky TV, which you can get to through SpookySouthCoast.com. And don't forget, not only can you watch the show live on Spooky TV, but you can also go back and see previous episodes on demand. So if you missed a Spooky TV broadcast or if you were listening to the podcast and you thought you'd like to see what our reaction was in the studio during that show, you can get it all on Spooky TV. And it's all going to be linked up soon to a new app uh, that some friends of ours are creating for the iPhone and the iPod Touch. And uh, we'll also try and get some people who can work on ones for BlackBerry and Android as well because we want to be invading your lives as many ways as we can. And with that in mind, we're going to be invading your life, or maybe you can come and invade ours, on February 26th. It's the Dead of Winter event at the Lizzie Board and Bed and Breakfast. It's being presented in conjunction with Spooky South Coast and GhostVillage.com. Jeff Belanger will be on hand hosting the event uh, along with the Spooky crew at the Lizzie Board and Bed and Breakfast in Fall River, Massachusetts. And it's going to start at 6.30. We're going to have dinner, which will be prepared by the Silent Assassin and myself. Right, Matt? You're, I, sure. I yeah. roped you into this. Yeah. and we're actually, we're actually good cooks. It's... We don't we don't talk about it much, but our day jobs involve food. Want me char up some mammal flesh? Uh, that's up to you because l- let me give you the menu here and see see if see if this sounds good to you. We're gonna have chicken marsala. Ooh. We're gonna have uh, lemon pepper roasted pork. We're gonna have rice. Can we get that wild yeah. rice? I like that wild yeah. rice. Is that is that, is that gonna be too now crazy? everybody listening is getting hungrier and hungrier. Is that gonna be too crazy? Is that gonna get everybody might, riled up? Might be a little too crazy. It's a little wild that rice. But the long grain balances it out, keeps it keeps it uh, under control. Uh, we're gonna have butter, butter garlic pasta, vegetable medley, and my wife has decided to make some desserts. And if anybody's heard some of the previous episodes where we talk about Ooh. some of her desserts, the Oreo brownies will be yes. in the house. So you yes. don't, you don't want to miss those, and that's worth the price of the ticket alone. And so you have dinner. During dinner, you're going to have uh, the opportunity to have a discussion about, you know, the, the basics of ghost hunting and paranormal investigation. We're going to talk a little bit about legends. We're going to have Leanne Wilbur, the manager of the property, talk about some of the history of the Leg- uh, Lizzie Borden case and the legends that have sprung up uh, around it. And then we're going to have something that nobody out there has seen before. We're going to have the worldwide debut of Bill Chappell's new... Now, if you know Bill Chappell, you know some of his some of his work. You've seen The Ovilist and some of these other devices that he's created that are being used on shows like Ghost Adventures and Ghost Hunters and uh, Paranormal State, all these different groups on TV. You see them using Bill Chappell's devices. Well, he's taken George Meek's original Spiritcom device uh, that was created in the 60s and 70s, and he's 
made a new version of it. Now, the plans have been out there online for many years, and people have gotten confused about exactly what did what and what went where. Well, Bill has kind of brought things back to their very essence, and he's created a Spiritcom that takes up not a room, as Meeks previously did, but fits into a suitcase. And he's shipping one to Jeff, and Jeff's going to have it. It's going to be the worldwide debut. Nobody's used one of these in the field uh, in one of these uh, settings before. We're going to do it that night. We're going to talk about the Spiritcom. And we're going to talk with Bill Chappell at the event. He's not going to be there in person, but through technology, we're going to be able to bring him in. And he can explain a little bit about the device. And you can see it firsthand before you'll get the chance to actually use it out in the field yourself. And we're going to basically communicate with as many of the spirits in the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast as we can. So uh, you don't want to miss this, especially if you're somebody who follows uh, EVPs, who follows ITC you're going to want to be there for this because it's going to be amazing. And plus, you know, it's going to be a, just a great night. We're going to investigate until 2 o'clock in the morning, at which case, you, uh, which point you can go and retire to your private room uh, should you decide to rent one. Here are the ticket prices. The event itself, which includes dinner and the investigation, $125. Uh, the, to get a room on the third floor, it's $150. So it's only $25 more a person in your party to get the room. Uh, so... You, you really can't beat that deal. That's phenomenal. Then it's 175 a person if you want to get a second floor room because those are a little bigger and those are a little bit nicer and the bathrooms are closer. And so uh, 120, 125, 150, and 175. Those are the ticket prices. In order to get these tickets, you have to call the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. And as, what is it? 200 bucks if you want to sleep in the cellar. <laughs> if you want to sleep in the cellar, good luck to you because uh, there's going to be people down there all night. I know that. But uh, if you want to get involved, you have to call the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast and make your arrangements with Leanne. Uh, she's going to be processing all the ticket sales and everything over there because she's going to keep track of who has what room. Uh, so you'll be able to pick and choose your room as long as you call very quickly. There's only 25 spots that are going to be sold to this event because uh, basically fire laws prevent us from putting too many people into the house. So if you call now, there I know there was... 16 left, I think. 16 left uh, when we came here uh, earlier on to the show. So let's see here. I'm trying to see if there's been any update as to how many tickets are left. Yep, 16 tickets are left uh, as of 7.15 tonight. So if you want to get involved, 508-675-7333. That's the number at the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast. You can also go to ghostvillage.com backslash Lizzie, L-I-Z-Z-I-E, and you can find out more about the event and how to get tickets there as well. So I'm predicting that if you – you have to act fast. I'm predicting these tickets are probably going to be gone by next weekend, uh, and if not, definitely the weekend after that. But the event itself is February 26th. Uh, if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, uh, Tim Weisberg on Facebook, I've created an event page there as well so you can find out more information. And, again, ghostvillage.com backslash Lizzie, uh, limited to only 25 tickets. So please make sure that you get involved. ASAP, because you're not going to want to miss this. I mean, like I said, Oreo brownies. <laughs> what more do you need than that? People have offered to pay more than $125 for the recipe for the Oreo brownies. So that just goes to show you uh, what you'll be enjoying there. So, All right. Well, why don't we take a little break, and when we get back, we'll talk more about the gray aliens and the harvesting of the human soul. That is the new book by Nigel Kerner. Sorry, it's Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls by Nigel Kerner. We're going to talk with him and Dr. John Biggerstaff more about the greys, more about the idea of 
collecting and analyzing and trying to duplicate the human soul. And we're going to talk about some of the more enlightened souls over history and what they might have had to tell us about this oppressive power that's out there. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Sounds like a good one for the EVPs to play. <laughs> we're gonna say the same thing. When are we gonna get back together? I, I know Jeff said he's really busy, but we can practice without him. We gotta get the band back together. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting the we're on a mission from God. But uh, speaking of being on a mission from God, we are talking about the human soul. We're talking about the book Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls: The Conspiracy to Genetically Tamper with Humanity by Nigel Kerner. And I know for some people who might be. Uh, you know, who might look at this UFO stuff and, and this alien abduction stuff is, is really out there. And our, our audience is open-minded as they are. I know no s- pun intended. Yeah, well, it's from the beyond. But I know uh, as open-minded as our audience is, some of them do have trouble wrapping their minds around the idea of alien visitors from another planet. And I want to stress that Nigel's book is about so much more than that. Uh, you're getting a, a lot of information uh, about the nature of the human soul, the nature of mankind, uh, the nature of our evolution, or possibly in, in, in the case of the second law of thermodynamics, kind of a de-evolution uh, of the perfected state that we start in. And, Nigel, what what I found the most uh, interesting as I'm reading this is as you are presenting your case for the nature of humanity and the direction that we're going, it becomes really interesting to me that these extraterrestrial creatures would even want to buy into what it is that we're doing because soul and all you know actually the soul notwithstanding what we're doing to ourselves while we have those souls is kind of a a a negative in my eyes and i've got i've got to say something to you you know i'll tell you what listening to the the incredible way that americans can sell anything (laughs) i'm sitting here as a i'm sitting here as a brit wondering whether i really should have named the book uh, gray aliens and the harvesting of Oreo brownies. If you, see what I mean, I <laughs> you know, if I can send them, <laughs> if I can send them internationally, I'll, I'll send some your what, way. You, you made it sound so interesting and so delicious. This recipe that you were giving out there, that I, I almost wish I was an American. In fact, I'll ask John if he can make it over from Tennessee. <laughs> he might take one of those sixteen tickets that are left, perhaps. You know, and. <laughs> That would be a very interesting experience to come back to me, and we can discuss it in a deep-set forum in which all of us consider that maybe we've got our priorities wrong here <laughs> in looking at this well, business. Quite simply, in that kind of depth, we really ought to look at this in a little bit more light-hearted way, and maybe then that might get through to many people that we're actually considering here the, the, the kind of existential platform on which we all actually live, if you see what I'm trying to say. So i tell you what. It's quite a lesson to us Brits on how to sell something. This is absolutely superb stuff. Well, you know, all the jokes that Americans make about British people and their teeth, 
it would only be much, much worse if my wife's Oreo brownies ever made it over there. Because <laughs> they, he they, doesn't bear mentioning what British people eat, let me say that to you. In fact, in, oh, in I've the, been there. In, I've in, seen in, what you guys eat. In the eat. light of your recipe, and I'll tell you what, it sounds so delicious. Maybe sometime when I'm passing that way, if you repeat this th performance, you know, I might drop in myself and have a look at all this. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, anyway, let me just simply say this. You know, I, I really don't want to get too deep about this, Tim, because I think your your extrapolation on this was was excellent in a, in a sense. It really is something that we looked at from the point of view of uh, you know an interesting intellectual exercise and and whatever. See if we can construct something meaningful out of all this business. And really, it's quite true what you say. The human aegis, in terms of being human and so on, is such a such an interesting and wonderful thing. The problem is that. Whilst this is going on around the back of us, so to speak, there may be some rather serious guys there looking at all of us from that kind of point of view. And I really wanted to say to, to, to people, you know, it's one thing to, to actually look at this thing in that kind of way, but uh, maybe we ought to also pay attention to future generations and know where this, is, this particular thing is concerned and have a look and see whether there is something that we all ought to be looking at a little bit more, if you like, on, on that kind of deeper scale. So I do apologize for getting a little bit too kind of into this in, 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 in a scientific kind of way, but it really is something that, that, that one bear, well, I, would, I would say it's out there, go and have a look at this on the internet and so on, and for those guys in, in, you know, maybe in Harvard University or whatever, they, uh, you know, the deeper kind of study mechanisms in the United States admired all over the world that maybe there is something that we, we, we ought to look at when, when, we're, when we're not looking at it, so to speak, if you see what I'm trying to say. So, mm -hmm. in, in a sense, this whole business is to do with uh, researchers actually going into things that are happening now, you know, where computers that go to work inside the cell, itself, DNA, it seems, is the best material to help to create silicon chips to make the fastest, smallest, and therefore the most efficient computers. Now, can you imagine? This is an amazing thing. A group of students recently in Hong Kong, in the Chinese university there, uh, are making strides towards storing vast amounts of information in an unexpected home. A, a bacterium that can actually put enough information in a teaspoon full of a bacterium, actually computer, computer, computerized mechanisms that can actually provide in this teaspoon uh, the, uh, the equivalent of huge numbers of gigabytes of information. <laughs> you know, whilst we, <laughs> whilst we enjoy ourselves in, in being human, so to speak, there are some serious guys there doing this business and maybe we ought to look at the fact that somewhere out there, there might be something cold and dead, knows nothing about the American way or the, or the British lack of a good recipe in food or whatever, <laughs> that are looking at us from the point of view of our own futures as human beings. And that's really the business uh, of the book. I don't want to, to get too serious about it. In fact, book three, I try to get a little bit more lighthearted about things and so on and ask people to look at this in, in, in a kind of, you know, a human sense of a human scale of reference and so on. So maybe we can we can come come at this or to, together in that, in that kind of way. And uh, John Biggestaff has some interesting takes on this. We'll try and make this a little bit more kind of, you know, uh, interesting in that, in that sense for you guys. So as as, as I'm saying, as we go along in, in, in trying to consider where uh, hum, humanity is heading and so forth, 
The best way to do it is whilst we're enjoying ourselves up front, so to speak, the back door is always open to something else that's a little bit more insidious. And I don't mm-hmm. really wish to be negative about this. But, you know, if you take away what we are and what we, what we basically enjoy ourselves with as human beings, if we take that precept away from our capacity as human beings, right, then we have nothing left. And I think that's the answer to why these, these, these threats ought to be looked at in some kind of way for, for the future sense and so on. So listening to you guys and, you know, the, 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 the fun sense you engender into people, I, I, I wish we could actually, you know, be there with you in, 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 in that sense because you guys can sell something, let me tell you. <laughs> you can sell something. And we Brits can take a great lesson from that. In fact, we're getting poorer in the world because we haven't learned from our American, if you like, um, sons and daughters. Remember, you spoke with this kind of accent once upon a time, you guys. <laughs> you thought you got good sense enough to get away from Britain, let me say that. <laughs> well, we, and we've also made sure that we've uh, tried to get rid of our New England accents, too, at least uh, while we're on you the radio. But, uh, you bet, Dave. And you know, as good as, as good as we are at selling, I haven't even mentioned my book, Ghost of the South Coast, which is available in bookstores <laughs> and uh, <laughs> also online at SpookySouthCoast.com and in the back of my car. So, but uh, you know, when when we are looking at this though, and, and you mentioned that it is kind of an insidious thing, uh, but really, there's nothing we can do about the species coming down and and running these tests and abducting people. Except maybe yes. try to understand it. But even if we understand it, how can we stop it? Yes, there is. You, you guys just proved it by a lovely invective with each other and so on. That sense that, that you have of that, that human frame of reference of interaction, the way you demonstrated that uh, this morning uh, or tonight in your, in your broadcast, is, is, a, is a wonderful way of doing it because you're, you're showing your humanity, you're showing the power of your will and your thoughts and so on. And the problem with machines, Tim, is that they take that all away because they don't know. There's no way they know how to do that. You see what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. It's a cold mechanism. And what we can do is whilst we retain our humanity and our sense of kinship with each other and so on, that it is the greatest antidote of all, to be human in that sense. And that, I think, is what I really want to say about my book. It's gone kind of thermonuclear, it seems to me, and the great controversy about it all over the world and so on. But in the end, what I'm trying to say quite simply, as, as a metaphor, if you like, is that that power of our human sense with each other is all the antidote we need to resist these insidious things that might crawl in at the back door and intercept and interrupt that procedure and that process of being human. And that really is what it's all about. And John, John and, and you know, the science background that we've got just considers that side of it, if you see what I'm trying to say. That doesn't mean to say we can have a good joke and perhaps enjoy that wonderful, delicious uh, menu that you just set up, you know, for a... <laughs> It's actually it's rather cruel because I'm sitting here in England whilst you guys are going to enjoy this over there. And John's the only one within access to that. So, you know, maybe he'll get one of those 16 tickets that I left. <laughs> you had a question, Matt? <laughs> no, I, ju- I just wanted to mention something to Nigel. In the years of doing the research at, uh, with abductees, now my specialty is um, you would call them couples abductees or people that are taken more than one at a time, or two people taken independently and brought together, you know, made to interact. 
But when I got a chance to talk to uh, one, he said to uh, these beings uh, as a defense mechanism, I don't believe in you. You're not real. You know, trying to distance himself from the situation. And in a cold, uh, calculated voice, the response back to him was, it doesn't matter if you believe we exist. What matters is we believe you exist. In other words, these things were more concerned about this individual and what they were going to yep. do to him rather than what he thought about them. Right, indeed. And that you make a very profound point, if I may say so. But the point is this. They don't realize that in all, in all existential terms, that their existence is meaningless because they're machines. And that's the big point that we've got over them. See, if you are an abductee, please don't despair. All research, and I've done this over 30-odd years, all research leads to one conclusion, and in my mind, so to speak, and, and looking at it six ways to Sunday, so to speak, if you are an abductee, don't despair. I believe abductees are amongst those whom the greys are having a problem introducing their program into. They have certain successfully intercepted biological lines, and those they do not those lines cannot be got at by these creatures. These, these lines are intercepted not by the greys or some artificial intelligence, uh, profound though it might be in technological terms, but these lines are intercepted by something left in the past, by great beings biologically, and this, these ingredients may be in the genetic code of abductees. And if these things want to take, shall we say, our human species over, it's the abductees they're having the problem with, and that's why they take them and have a look at them and examine them and see why whatever they're doing to us is not working with the abductees. The ones they can do that with, they don't bother about. Obviously, that's an obvious, uh, you know, rational conclusion. But they will only take the ones that they have a problem with. So abductees are very, very special people. Black sheep of the human and species. Even, even though these things might believe that they've got, you know, the mean, that they are all that matters and so forth, that it doesn't matter about us. The real thing, I think there's this example I quoted about going up in space in, 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 the, in the biblical context thing with Jesus and so forth, was that he was trying to say to them, hang on a minute, you guys, you are less than insects because you're machines. You might think all the things you like within your own frame of your program, but in fact, you have no connection anywhere except in your own cells, in your own mechanistic um, uh, outlay, if you like. So interception is thus not the same as abduction. To resist interception, this is the big deal. Interception is the big deal. To resist interception, I would say the best thing is to be as different to them as possible, to be as different as a machine psychology that can only know the physical universe as it is possible to be, just a physical universe. They don't have any sense of imagination, grandness, all the, the wonders that we are capable of within a natural mind, so to speak. So make your priorities based on values that treasure, I think, that which is not purely physical and atomic. The moment you do that, 
you get outside their grasp. They do not understand that. You know, there are examples where these things take uh, individuals who work on their genetics, work on their, their sexual uh, reproductive system and so forth, produce hybrid children, and then give these hybrid children to the women that have nurtured them or whatever it is, or born them, and watch how human beings relate even to a hybridized kind of entity with a sense of caring and love, the mothers, I mean. And they, are, they just don't understand emotion. They are, don't understand feeling because the machine can't feel. It's rather like your vacuum cleaner, if you see what I'm trying to say in the end. But the danger is that a, a program is relentless. It doesn't know meaning in that kind of... It can't extrapolate meaning and feeling and so on. And that's the great thing that we have. And I, I don't wish to get too too spooky, if you like, about this kind <laughs> of thing. Wrong if, you really want to get spooky, if you really want to get spooky, by the way, do your program in the Tower of London. You've got some real spooks oh, there, I'd let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something we could definitely work on in the future. You know, you mentioned that the secret to... to uh, avoiding these greys and, and their agenda is to be as different as possible. I think that explains why Matt Moniz has never been abducted himself, because we can't get much more different than him. But As far as you know. Uh, John, I want to ask you a question. Or as far as I know. <laughs> Dr. Yeah, Dr. John goes. Biggerstaff is with us as well. Yeah. And I want to ask yeah. you a question. We mentioned coming out of the first hour the idea of the human genome, and, and Nigel just touched upon it a little bit there, but are we seeing evidence as we've mapped out the human genome that there is uh, – some type of influence from these alien cultures? Because we hear about uh, the role that they played in ancient civilizations in developing our technologies, uh, but did they play a role in developing us as human beings as well? I think, actually, it sort of goes part and parcel one with the other. You know, as I was mentioning earlier about, you know, we have this tendency really towards uh, going, to, going towards technology, which, you know, uh, that has the incidental effect of actually, actually making us more like them which makes us more susceptible to them, you know, they, if they've come from somewhere else or whatever, what they want to do is to actually manipulate our genetics in such a way that, you know, they can fit in, in in a sort of hybrid way so that they can effectively take advantage of this ability uh, to be outside of the second law of thermodynamics, which is actually making, because they're physical, um, they're all decaying. But, you know, over a period of time, you know, uh, what Nigel says in his, in his book, um, which, which I, I agree, um, you know, these, these things are reported in, in our present cycle of civilization, if you like, as far as we know, as far as we know it back. You know, we can actually, we can trace our, our background as human beings really back, you know, a couple of hundred, at least a couple of hundred thousand years to a choke point, if you like. You know, and, and through this thing called mitochondrial DNA, we can actually see that very few, there, there were actually very few humans on the planet at the time, and that we, we can be extrapolated to almost have derived from one. Now, all of this ha happened in, in, in Africa uh, a couple of hundred thousand years ago. And what, uh, as, as we devolve, basically, then we get to the point where we become more susceptible to these machine-like interceptions. Now, Nigel mentioned earlier, a little earlier, about the Japanese group that could put codes and they're trying to effectively make DNA computers, etc. Mm. So inf information can be stored in the DNA of bacteria. Now, the thing is, you know, more recently, you know, last year, you know, people have been successful in effectively making artificial bacteria with the full code, etc., now, the point is, 
that, you know, this is a perfect mechanism. We use bacteria in molecular biology now to actually insert gene sequences into, into our genes. Now, DNA itself, our, our human DNA, if we're going to go according to the, to the idea of a devolving species, uh, we're only using about 4% or so of the, of the DNA that we have, and the rest of it is considered to be junk, although uh, it, it's not entirely functionless. People are now ascribing some functions to parts of it, but nevertheless, the majority of our DNA uh, is, uh, is actually redundant. And... <coughs> This, in fact, may in fact reflect, you know, we effectively only use a small part of our large brains as well, which actually is contradictory to an evolutionary theory, but much better suited to the concept of a devolutionary idea, in which case, as we lose function, we gradually switch off more and more of these functions, and then we need, we need technology to get back in, in there. Now, the idea of using a bacterial-type mechanism if one reads a, a general cell biology book, as any, any student begins to do, we find out the parts of a cell. And one part I really want to concentrate on just a little is the, is the little part called the mitochondrion. Now, <clears throat> I've just mentioned mitochondrial DNA as a sort of tracing background. Mitochondria have their own DNA, and it is thought in the cell biology books, for instance, that this came about by... Uh, a symbiotic relationship between a bacterium and a eukaryotic cell. The thing is that if, if in fact, we've got a devolutionary process, which actually seems to, to make a, a great deal more sense, then it rather implies that these mitochondria were used, as we use them in our molecular biology labs, as vectors to insert information uh, into our genomes. And over a period of time, the, the bacterium itself has lost most of its genome, and in, and in fact, what's happened is that as the, the mitochondrial DNA, which is a circle, actually is broken, it can be broken into little bits, and those bits, we know, uh, can actually migrate to the nucleus and actually integrate into our DNA. And so, you know, by the manipulation of, of either enzymes or by using ultraviolet light, as a lot of people of, often observe, we can actually affect the mitochondrial DNA and use it as a vector to get into the, into the main nucleus. Now, our, our nuclear DNA seems to have some association, although not a direct mechanism, on what our psychology actually says, because, you know, we have the genes for, genes really control, uh, to some extent, neurotransmitter expression, uh, etc., in our, in our nervous system and brain. And these neurotransmitters can, can up or down regulate an awful lot of different functions and can effectively sort of uh, lend a susceptibility to a trend, you know, towards alcoholism or to, or to disease, in fact, uh, to some diseases as well. And so if you, if you then start to insert sequences, and I think this may have occurred, you know, via the mitochondria, and then they actually come back, and what they did, you know, to these hominids, it probably put them all in different places, uh, like I would, for instance, in different petri dishes, and treat them in slightly different ways, and see what's the best genetic mix you can actually find. And this is why we have our, you know, subspecies of, uh, well, not subspecies, but subtypes of, of sort of Homo sapiens all over the planet. That mm. uh, it wasn't so much a migration, because you know. Uh, what, what person is going to leave a, a really nice place to live to, to walk across a desert to get to Australia or wherever? 
Uh, it, it really doesn't make a huge amount of sense, this migration out of Africa. It makes a lot more sense if you actually say that these people were effectively planted in, in different places. And so um, the mitochondrion is a mechanism. There are other bits of genetics um, which are relevant to this. One of them is the concept of trinucleotide repeats. Um, I don't want to get too heavy into it because I don't know if your listeners, you know, are really familiar with all of this stuff. But for I'll anybody who's interested, this was discovered in the in, in these were discovered in the 90s, and they're effectively like little sequences of three base base pairs or bases which are inserted into the DNA at different parts, and they have the property of expanding themselves over time. And as they come in, they can actually start to cause diseases, such as cancer and uh, neurological diseases. I think Nigel wants to say something about this now. Yeah, the, 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 I was just trying to say that, you know, in the end, the DNA dictates the human being. It makes proteins and presents us as we are. And, you know, people who aren't familiar with the science of it might find that a little bit daunting. The, the, what I'm trying to simply say is that we have this propensity that has been cultured into us by some mechanism that intercepted us at root, Matt. And that's the point. I'm quite touched and quite taken by your perception and what you've just said of your understanding of what we're trying to actually say here. And I don't want to get too heavy about this. And, you know, really, we, we're talking about the human being as we are and how we present ourselves. But the real po the point I'm trying, uh, I think John is trying to make is that whilst we can account for this with real central science and the way it's rather dry way that scientists think, it really has a relevance Matt. It really has a re relevance to all us human beings that whilst we are entertaining ourselves on the surface, so to speak, something might be crawling in unnoticed, so to speak, into the very nature that we pride ourselves on, you know, as human beings. And that then provides us perhaps with no way out if the takeover through what they do is complete. And that's really what I'm trying to say with the book and so on, is watch, please watch. Don't go running off, skipping over the daisies too much, because they'll come through the back door and you won't know what daisies mean anymore. And that is something I think we all have to take notice of. And the reason America is important, let me say this in a sense, and I really truly mean this, America is the most powerful agent for change, I believe, in the world today regardless of any other country. And within the power that America has to influence things, what if America takes this over and says to the human race, listen, guys, whilst we have Americana and what that means, we also have a responsibility through our power for the human race itself and its existential meaning, if you see what I'm trying to say. And that within the auspice of Americana and what it can do in the world, no harm, call it what you like, this is the only gate, if you like, through which our species itself might stay within its natural concept of being, rather than have some cold thing that happens in on our space-time sees something like that as special and different to itself, and then works to make us lab rats on which it then can interpose its 
own agenda, so to speak. Now, that at least is an idea that America should consider, bearing in mind that it has this incredible power. It saved the world many times, and no one can deny that, from terrible powers that sought to, to make us and take us faster into this aegis of, of a, a kind of mechanistic being. Hitler, for instance, was supposed to have said, to the Nazis and whatever, look, I give you the future man. And he showed, I believe, one of these alien kind. And that was stopped by America in stopping Hitler. So we have a great thank you to say to your nation and its people. And that's why I've written the book, so that people can actually see what this might be, what the ingredients might be. I may be wrong in my conclusions, and I'm hoping that somebody can rationally explain why I'm wrong. But if I'm wrong, then there's an interesting warning, I, I believe, at the very least in the book. However, the question is this, what if I'm right? Where are we and what are we? As America has saved the world several times up to now, and let me tell you, as a Brit, I acknowledge that. Even though Britain stood alone and fought these Nazis in the war, America came in and helped us complete the job, if you see what I'm trying to say. Without America, you and I and all that we take for granted would not be here. And so that's a nice sociological format, if you like, or framework that everybody ought to take note of in the world today, you see. So the book is written quite simply as a metaphor for that kind of announcement and warning just take a look. The truth truly is out there, you know, and we can enjoy ourselves as long as the deeper set and deeper meaning that prevails for our being is taken recognizance of, so to speak. Can't even, can't even pronounce the word, but that really is what I'm trying to say, basically. And you guys, whilst you are there you, you, with, with your, your program and talking about various things to do with, you know, the extraordinary, you really are, by default, producing something very, very valuable for all humankind, particularly in the Boston area, I might say. Well, I don't know you. whether Boston is any the less or the more, you know, relevant to this. But, uh, well, I'm going to say one thing. It, we'll certainly make it up for throwing that tea in the harbor. <laughs> I want to apologize <laughs> to you personally for that. But, uh, well, we've only got about nine, eight minutes left here in the show, uh, Nigel, and yeah. I'm, I'm afraid that yeah. throwing this question out there means uh, that we won't have enough time to really get into the intricacies of what the Shroud of Turin is all about. Indeed. We can, we can but, definitely you know, bring you back you what, for another show to what, talk please, about that. Please, if you can, invite along this, this scientist, uh, this doctor, uh, medical doctor, Andrew Silverman, who has an absolutely riveting take on the Shard of Turin and, and what it might actually mean. And it's not religious, Tim. It really is not bipartisan in any kind of way. It's for everybody. He's a Jew, by the way, Andrew. And here he is considering this individual that Christians have taken over and kind of made their own. I don't know why. He was a Jew anyway in the first place. I'm a Christian by at least somebody splashed some water on me and told me I was a Roman Catholic, if you see what I'm trying to say. And he's a Jewish uh, individual in, in, his, in, his, in his culture and so on. And he could see in the Shroud something absolutely remarkable. And I'll tell you what. You have got a riveting program if you invite this guy along. <laughs> well, we'll definitely do that uh, coming up because I don't want to try to shortchange the idea of it now and, and squeeze it into six or seven minutes. So uh, we'll, we'll get into that. But let's just say that for, for those who believe in the Shroud of Turn and believe that it uh, really does represent 
Jesus and, and the wounds that he suffered. And, and it means when you read Nigel's book and when we have this discussion, it actually means so much more to humanity than just physical proof of Jesus and what he endured. So we'll, we'll throw that out there as a, a little bit of a teaser. Uh, and in the time that we have left, uh, I think we continue talking about the idea of what you're talking about, avoiding this takeover by these greys, avoiding them coming not to rule our planet, not to uh, enslave the human race as many people feel, but to try to mimic us and, and basically try and borrow from us what our very essence is. Do you think that with the artificial intelligence that we have today and with the fact that nobody is walking down the street without some advanced technology in their pocket, be it a cell phone, be it an iPod, be it whatever, do you feel like we're actually creating the beginnings of... I have no doubt about that, Tim. Uh, Matt uh, and, and Tim, this is really something that we have to look at. I think that that's where it's leading, back engineering and so on. There's a cartel here that knows about these things. And that, that cartel, in order to produce, you know, the profit um, uh, escape that comes from all of this, you know, uh, will probably use this. But in the end, the buck stops with our final humanity. And Bud Hopkins and Professor Jacobs have been the most wondrous lights, you know, lighting our way in this. And people don't really uh, appreciate how powerful these human beings are in their contribution to, to what we are as a species. Yes, I do believe, to answer your question, that this is going on covertly. And we have to watch this. Because you have children. I don't know whether you have children yourself, but I'm saying that people who have kids in the future, this is really a testament to them, basically. What are we leaving for them? Are we leaving just a poison planet? Are we just leaving a scope to be machines? As mums and dads, we have to think about that. Now, I don't really want to sound some pious preacher when I say this kind of thing, but as a dad, I really do wonder about that when I look at my children's eyes, so to speak, and wonder where, where is their future, really? If such a thing exists in our world, even, even as an idea, if you see what I mean, even if there is no actual reality to it, we surely have to fight to make sure that they have the fullest possible scope to be this human wonder that we really are and appreciate our power as human beings to be something that and actually return to our origins, a wondrous, uh, if you like, paradigm in which there is an eternal scope for existence. And if we don't do that, stuck in our own particular aegis in the physical universe of breaking past under the second law of thermodynamics, are we going to go the way of everything else, broken down into a dark and cold and featureless scape that has no meaning whatsoever, where meaning is actually taken away, where rational sense is taken away. My thesis is that the simple binding momentums implied in love thy neighbor as thyself can realign genetically, if you like, the altered tracks back to the natural genetic prospectus of all of us, basically. Now, that might sound highfalutin language. It simply means stay as powerfully beautiful and coherent and unionizing, if you like, bringing things together as we possibly can. And we might, you never know, 
do that trick that this Jeshua ben Joseph uh, or Jesus Christ did when he transfigured and finally proved on this piece of cloth 2,000 years ago with his incredible resurrection. If he, he said to us, don't ye know ye are gods? He was reminding us what we had lost, I believe. And I think that's a beautiful thought, really, basically. And coming from him, after all, when he went into Jerusalem, he knew that he was going to die. And a crook and a liar would have run the other way. But he went in. And to me, anyone who does that, I know, had to be telling the truth, if you see what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. So there are numerous accounts within many texts of the old uh, texts, the old authorities that the Christian church took out because a cartel of people hijacked all of us and said, unless we, we give you the sanction to go wherever beyond, you don't. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, whether they run in Pope mobiles and Cardinal Cadillacs or whatever, shall we say, they don't know what they are talking about. Each one of us has that individual authority to make ourselves into the things that this man said we could be, gods or no gods, if you see what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. So that really is my, in a sense, what I'm trying to say and what, uh, what Andrew would try to say to you if you get him on this program and, and, let, and just listen to this man talking about the Shroud of Turin and its verification and of course what John is saying in terms of his expertise uh, uh, in terms of the biological principles that actually hitch up to what we're trying to say we're, I'm not, we're not trying to claim that we know the truth but we're saying listen, the science works in this kind of way, we can extrapolate it and prove it to be so and quantum theory you know, Schrodinger and, and, and these great minds said, listen, if there is no observer, there is no reality. That is really what it's all about. They actually say that. And quantum theory is regarded as the most accurate, verifiable paradigm we have at the moment. I hate to cut so, you off there, Nigel, but we're just about out of time. Okay. Right. We'll, we'll have you back, okay, though, to, to talk more in the future. Again, his name is Nigel Kerner. The book is Gray Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. You can get it from nigelkerner.com. Thank you, Nigel, for joining us. Thank you to Dr. John Biggerstaff for joining us. We'll be back Thanks next week. Much. Thank you. And we'll be talking next week with Richard Salva about his new book, The Yoga of Ghost Hunting. So until then, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular.